You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 19, Tony Scott's True Romance with Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Christopher Walken, Samuel L. Jackson. The cast list goes on and on. There's so many bullets. There's so much Chris Penn. There's so much Tom Sizemore sweating. Cody. Yes, sir. He must have thought it was white boy day. It ain't white boy day, is it? Nah, it ain't white boy day. Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and with me as always is Martin Carlson. Hello, hello. And rejoining us is Cody Bouchard. He's Cody! Back in the saddle again! In the flesh. Mm, this is like a holiday special for us because we are recording it Thanksgiving week, and Cody gets to actually be back in town after his sojourn across the state. Cody? Yo! I gotta tell you, it feels amazing to be back in the same room together. I 100% agree. We're getting the band back together. We're back. We're having a good time. It's, Got some it's, whiskey. It's, it's like no time has passed at all and like a lifetime has passed all at the same time. I'm wasted already. So like, what are we talking about today? True. Tony Scott. That's right. We're doing another auteur-centric episode about Tony Scott and specifically True Romance. Martin, uh, remind me, why did we pick this movie? We picked True Romance because I think for all three of us, it's definitely, I know that Cody loves it, you love it, I love it. It has that great mix of Tarantino script-wise mixed with the directing of Tony Scott, really when he was like really figuring out his style. Like he already had it, but it kind of has that, that perfect early 90s feel to it, and in general, we want to talk about Tony Scott because he kicks fucking ass. And generally, this is the most fun I had prepping for one of these, these new episodes of The Auteur. I watched n- 10 Tony Scott films this weekend. Yeah, I was going to bring that up at first because like, you were literally text messaging me being like, I watched four Tony Scott movies today. This is awesome. I have what no a- regrets. What about... Tony Scott's filmography do you think makes it so uh, rewatchable frankly 
there's variety. Like it's not, you know, like you would, for instance, like the Bedecker episode and you know, I love Bedecker, but like one of the things you mentioned was they're so similar that you wish there had been more time in between watching them. Right. Because they are so similar. So it's like, all right, they're kind of running together. Like I'm missing out on the little moments because it's all this one kind of block. He really, I mean, there's like definitely we'll get into this more in the podcast of these like different eras in his filmmaking, like these kind of periods and, you know, moving from and I'd never seen The Hunger. So for me, great excuse to watch that um, into his early 90s stuff, into his like acid jazz <laughs> early 2000s to, to mid 2000s trilogy, as I call it, as you call it. Yes. And then into his his late stuff where he kind of calmed down a little bit. Um, but I think also, number one, he is an ultimate entertainer. Like, he's one of the best action storytellers in the history of cinema. I think there are a numerous action filmmakers slash just blockbuster filmmakers today who would not have any of their style without the influence of Tony Scott. At the same time, we're missing what he had to bring. Like, it's one of the things you messaged me because we were texting a lot. I think both this is like, wow, like just revisiting stuff that we hadn't seen in a while or just really go- diving deep for Tony Scott was, oh my God, blockbusters, like Marvel shit looks so different today. It's so blank. And you look at the way, you look at Crimson Tide and it's lush. Like, and it's just the way he shoots everything is sexy and cool. And he can direct actors and it's exciting and, and all that. So sorry, that's my fucking soapbox. I love Tony Scott. Yeah, no, that was the big thing that I do kind of want to talk about on this episode is the fact that, like, it. I don't want to go on an anti, like, MCU screed yeah. or any of that bullshit, but, like, to us, the generation of dudes who are basically going into their 40s, like, this is what blockbuster cinema looked like to us when we were coming of age during the 90s. Like, we saw shit like Crimson Tide... Um, Enemy of the State, The Fan, uh, all the way up through like Man on Fire, uh, Domino, uh, and his like uh, Deja Vu, like all the acid tinge stuff. Like this defined the way a certain generation looked at big budget filmmaking, particularly like genre filmmaking itself. And like, again, not to go on like too uh, much of like a negative tangent, but like you compare the texture of a Tony Scott film to like whatever, like say Black Widow or Shang-Chi or any of these like MCU pictures. It's just, it's night and day. You can't believe that that for a certain period of time, like these were the hot, like some of the highest grossing, films to hit multiplexes in the day. And they were movies made for mature adults that involved like character actors, set pieces, practical effects, explosions, and just like great scripts from great writers. This is the, the, the epitome of craftsmanship at like the highest level. So like, that's why I wanted to talk about Tony Scott, but Cody, since you're coming back to us, yep. When was the first time that you saw True Romance? Can you remember? I had to have been somewhere between 17 and 19. Okay. Yeah. And so it's, uh, and I just want to say about it, similarly to how The Crow kind of shaped my um, 
emotional awareness like or one, yeah, yeah that adolescent like uh, idea of romance for lack of a better word because it's in the title of this fucking movie uh this movie so the, the crow did for me for that like the the early ages of you know 11 to 14 like this movie did for me between you know 17 and 20 yeah like felt it was like oh yeah it'd be fucking great if you just found a girl that was adorable as fuck as patricia arquette and also like 100 percent down on like all the hobbies that you're down into i mean i know this sounds like very <laughs> no very like idealist for whatever you know the, the male perspective but uh i just the movie meant everything to me for a very isolated amount of time but that amount of time felt very large to me at the time but I think that's the, the kind of like primal energy that Tarantino's like script is tapping into is because like this is the 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 fantasy that he was living in his head while he was working, <laughs> right? You know, as a video store clerk right. at a video archive. He is Clarence. Uh, yeah, exactly. Clarence is him, and like I had a, a conversation with uh, Noah Segan one time where he called it the greatest. A movie about breaking into Hollywood ever made. And that's kind of true. This is an entire metaphor for what it takes to basically pick up everything that you have, take your love with you, and then try to get into Hollywood by any means necessary. And it's, it's terrific. Like I, I latch onto that every time right up until the fucking earth shattering Lee Donowitz introduction. Yeah. It's really, um, I was thinking watching it. I didn't watch it in a few years was the kind of setting the precedent for like the manic pixie dream girl right. a little bit, right, right. Um, which people kind of judge today. And I think about this coming out in a very similar era to clerks, you know, of the kind of return of the comic nerd or like the, the, the rise of the comic nerd of we have something to say now while, Clerks still is still judging itself as we're kind of schlubby guys working. There's a heroic kind of mythic nature that is given right. to Clarence, I, I think, in this film. Um, but it's interesting they came out at that similar time before, again, not to mention MCU, before comics were cool. You know, when it was this kind of thing that it wasn't cool to like. And it's this you know, being it, you know, being watching a Sonny Chiba film uh, marathon. Triple also, feature, yeah. To a feature. Not in the at cool the vista. at the vista, not in the cool lexicon like it is would be today. Yeah, no, totally. Like this is the fantasy that Tarantino had in his head about what it took, or like what Hollywood would look like if movies just reflected the the inside yeah. of his skull, you know. But like, I want to pose this question to you two, and you guys can fence it out for who goes first. But like, what was the first Tony Scott movie you you each saw? You go ahead, Martin. Days of Thunder. Oh, really? Yeah, so Days of Thunder came out, I was seven. Um, and I remember Hardee's was running a promo where you got like a, not official Hot, Hot Wheels car matchbox, but it was like Hardee's version. And I got my Cole Trickle one uh, at Hardee's when I got my little burger. It was like their, their version of Happy Meal. I remember seeing it in the theater with my dad and my brother. And I fucking loved that movie. And I really, you know, it's, it's a movie I've really come back to often. I probably watch it once a year. I mean, Tony Scott, like probably five or six of his films I, are on a yearly rewatch for me. I watch Crimson Tide probably twice a year. Top Gun every year, every other year. Invite me over next time you watch Crimson that Tide. That sounds good. We'll, we'll get you initiated there. But, you know, I, at that age, thought Tom Cruise was the coolest guy on the planet. I remember, like, they put a lot, obviously with Hardy's doing a promo, like, 
it was a big deal, like this kind of follow-up to Top Gun, same director, same actor. I didn't know any of that those things at that time. I don't think I'd even seen, I obviously hadn't seen Top Gun yet, but for me, it was definitely Days of Thunder. Uh, mine's probably Top Gun. I, think yeah. I, I definitely saw that before, Days of Thunder. I mean, especially being a younger kid, you got to be 100% on board with that. It's fucking Jets and uh, oh, gu- guitar riffs and Val Kilmer and uh, the beautiful, uh, I forget who the actress is in that. What's her name? Kelly McGillis. Yeah, beautiful Kelly McGillis. That movie is a, a 10 out of 10 from the top to the bottom. You can't see that and just not want to buy a reaction figure. Or as soon as you're of age, go and sign up for the Air Force to try and be a fucking fighter pilot. The footage they got for that. I rewatched it two nights ago and I was like, I've think, read stuff about they got real footage with the Navy pilots. Right. And like, I, I think that was like unheard of before that. Yep. Well, then Michael Bay, like it's right. funny because Bay is like the, like, you know, now he's, that now later. he's the, he, he was already kind of doing Tony Scott style, but like, his relationship with the military for Transformers in particular. Right. Like he was showing planes. They had to shoot certain angles, the F-22 Raptor. Right. Because like, yeah, other angles would show like it's proprietary technology for our enemies. Yeah. Like he was, they kind of similar idea of, yeah, he got to show the Raptor before the Raptor was shown to like the U S public. Yeah, totally. Which is a nice segue into the fact that like Tony Scott walked so that Michael Bay could run. Yes. Because 100%. like all out Tony Scott, there is no Michael Bay. Because before this... Michael Bay runs on a Tony Scott treadmill. Yeah, well, and he, he splices at the, the... Like, Tony Scott, if you knew Tony Scott, actually did cocaine. Yeah. Because it's just... It's so fast. It's so in your face. It's just... It's Tony Scott on steroids to a certain degree. With worse humor. Doing cocaine yeah, off the off Way the floor. worse humor. Yeah, exactly. Or frat boy humor. I mean, like, that kind of just... Like, Transformers stuff's like, ugh. Because, I mean, before this, like, Bruckheimer, even though he was a, a commercial producer uh, and w- was the shepherd of uh, Tony Scott's career for the most part, like, he was bringing auteurist stuff to us. Like, he was bringing, like, Michael Mann's Thief. Um, he was uh, producing, like, Flashdance. Beverly for, Hills Cop. Yeah, Beverly Hills Cop. Like, they weren't quite the bombastic... Uh, staples of 90s action that we've come to know them as you know but i feel like top gun and tony scott like that's the first uh example of like what action cinema would look like for like the next 10 years 30 oh wow yeah years and give or take all right you know like at least up through the 90s yeah and they kind of shoot forward in like these these segments for me the rock was the one that shot it forward again because like because i love bad boys i think the rock takes it and kind of goes a little bit one step yeah, further, totally. you know, and it's like that kind of set the tone. And then honestly, again with, I know that's not Bruckheimer who did. They're separate for, um, transformers, I believe. Uh, I yeah, because I, that was dreamworks. That was dreamworks. Yeah. But then they kind of, they go separate, but also keeps doing things that way. Yeah. Because I mean, like he, he never goes too far away from Bruckheimer the yeah. whole time. Cause Bruckheimer even had, did he have anything to do with Platinum Dunes, or was that just Michael Bay? That's just Bay, I think. That's just Bay? Yeah. Because, I mean, you have Top Gun, and then you have Beverly Hills Cop 2, to kind of jump off of what you're saying, because they hired Tony Scott to basically follow up one of the biggest action comedies of all time, and in my eyes, maybe beat it? Yeah, I, we talked about that tonight. I, I disagree. Um, well, I was baiting you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, oh, I could tell. Um, I watched it. Do I smell a deal breaker in the works? 
Well, I, I rewatched two last night and I love two. Like I adore two. I think it's a better directed movie. I think Tony Scott is a much better than, the than Martin Press. The sequence in the beginning of like that diamond heist is ridiculous. It's fucking great. All the action is, is much better. Um, it just looks better. It has that Tony Scott, like this, the amber glow to like LA, which looks very different than Martin Brest's kind of more like blue sky. Oh, sure. Look, you know, everything's like magic hour in, in, um, Tony Scott's film. Well, it's, uh, it's like also worth noting that like they were trying to recruit like David Cronenberg one point. So oh like, my God. like Beverly <laughs> Hills Cop 2 wasn't an auteur thing. It was basically like, who can we bring in to helm this great script and like make Eddie Murphy a star? Like imagine what Cronenberg's like. Cop and then Eddie Murphy like. grows a third ridiculous. arm and he can fire three guns whilst flying through the air going, ah, well, he floated <laughs> exactly. on a lot of stuff. They didn't know what to do with Cronenberg. Cause he floated around uh, total recall for a while and yeah, had a much more heady, much more heady, less action heavy. Don't get me wrong. I thing. love total recall, but that would have been amazing. Oh, I mean, it's actually a project I think made for him. He was very passionate about yeah. that one too. It was more the identity kind of thing, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I prefer part one because I just think like the humor is like really fresh and is it's a personal thing too. Like I could totally understand liking two more, but one is, did you see one before two? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. But one was like my Saturday afternoon movie. It was like whenever I was in a bad mood or just like, like cleaning around the house, even today, I'm just like, what do I want to put on the background that I know every line of while I like vacuum? It's amazing. Like, I don't know, but Tony Scott totally brings his style to two and it blends really, really well. Because he, he ups the action ante too. Because the action in the first one is not that great. The comedy is amazing. Because you see like, that's the film I think where you really see Murphy become a star. Is is the first Beverly Hills Cop on display completely. That in Trading Places. Well, the, the uh, production company is literally displayed over his cock as he's in like yeah. underwear in the movie. Like the opening credits montage. So like you know whose movie this is. This is Eddie Murphy just hanging dong and being like I'm the biggest movie star in the world yes so like for part two yeah yeah exactly part two the one thing uh, that I'll say though is that like Beverly Hills Cop 2 gave way to the first Tony Scott movie that I remember watching um, and like recognizing like who it is which is Last Boy Scout oh yeah because you have Days of Thunder like in between but Last Boy Scout the man for is me, a classic machine yeah, like he just turns out like the the action staples that that really defined who we were as a generation. I was um, I'm on a Slack channel at work, just like some movie buddies, and they listen to the podcast. Just very nice of them. And like, what are you watching this week? I said I watched spent all weekend watching Tony Scott. And they're like, what movies? And I brought out Last Boy Scout, and they all flipped out. Like they're like, that's my one of my favorite movies ever. It has this like really rabid following. I yeah. think of from our era. It's because it's I one mean, of the best action films of all time. It also has the best Bruce Willis performance. Yeah. Like that's He's so 100%, good. It's got a, such like, a great mix. Even of drama over action. John McClane, I prefer uh, his down and out private hot private eye in this one. Well, it's something that like we talked this, I think last season, but you know, many people have made the point that his character in uh, die hard with vengeance is very similar to Howland Beck. He yeah. looks the same. The hair color is the same. Like his whole demeanor and dress is very much this like, having you know, he's not a cop. Just having a, having a bad day. But I love, I mean, putting Tony Scott together with Shane Black and Willis is just perfect. You know, and Damon Wayans knows how to 
run with the lines too. It's a great, great buddy, buddy cop. Not buddy cop, but buddy comedy, you know. One, like Tarantino talks about how like when he got uh, Bruce Willis for Pulp Fiction, how he said to him, like, I want a Joe Hallenbeck performance. Like, that's what I want from my movie. That's my favorite character you've ever done in your life. So, like, it brought us Butch, too. Like, and it makes or, sense. I never yeah. knew that, but it makes a lot of sense watching the performance. So, I mean, Cody, you know, what did you think, like, revisiting True Romance this time? Like, how did that kind of hit you? It hit me differently emotionally because I've, you know, matured as a man. Um, so, it didn't you know, strike as many like heart chords to it, but re watching it, I had a realization to myself. Uh, there's a few films that I think fit to this category, but I think this is a perfect movie. I don't think there's a scene that doesn't belong. I don't think there's a line of dialogue that doesn't progress the plot. I don't think there's a missed beat anywhere. I don't think there's a piece. I don't think there's a square of film that should have ended up on the cutting room floor. I think this is a flawless film. <laughs> Boom. I was waiting until you finished it. I kind of agree with you because like we watched it the other night, me, Martin, and uh, my girlfriend, Carrie. Oh, okay. We ordered a bunch of food. A and, lot of food. like we had all seen it a bunch of times and Even we're just Carrie? kind of, yeah. Like we, we uh, started, I had started Unstoppable before you and Carrie got there. I was watching through it and you guys kind of plopped down. We we're all hanging out, having beers talking over it, going over kind of what we were looking for in like the Tony Scott movies. And then we put on true romance and like, I'm not going to lie. Like there were huge stretches of that where everybody just shut the fuck up and was like, this movie like blows my mind. And I had a, a similar situation yesterday where my parents are in town for Thanksgiving. And like, I was like, Oh shit. I can easily watch Tony Scott movies around them because they like took me to these movies yeah. when I was a kid. So we watched Enemy of the State together and a similar thing happened. Like they knew exactly what Enemy of the State was. They've seen it before. They've seen it on TBS like a million times, but they sat down and like instantly were just sucked in. We're like, this movie fucking rules. Yeah, the movie like, is a thrill ride for, uh, pardon the phrasing, but that movie is just a freight train. Yeah, and it just like unstoppable. Yep. <laughs> but... No, it's, it's, Scott's interesting because like my dad and my mom are just like, they're very particular what they like to watch. I brought Deja Vu home from the video store. I had seen it before in the theater. How old were you? I mean, I was in my, I think it was like late twenties at okay. this point. This is like 2006. Um, and I, I brought it back and, or mid twenties. Um, and they hadn't seen it and I watched it. Once in the morning before, like by myself, or the night before, I watched Deja Vu, and I'm like, man, this movie still kicks ass. And the next night, my dad's like, what do we got to watch? And we didn't have, they don't have streaming up there. It's like 2006 or whatever. <laughs> um, no one had streaming yet. Right, and, right. and I said, um, well, I got this DVD, Deja Vu. I think you might like it. And my dad loves Denzel. My mom and dad both watched like, this is great. Like, they were just on, and like, Deja Vu is one of my... Watching it again last night. I think I've watched it like 10 times now. Super. The first time I didn't, I actually saw it at the cheap theater because I liked Scott at that time, but I was also like, eh, it was kind of ridiculous, you know? And I was an, I was an idiot, no. but I was wrong. And the I thought old dollar flicks, but it was awesome. And although you, you've opened up what like my mess, my next line of questioning for this one, like what do you think is the most 
for a guy who's made this many hits and this many movies that you can just sit down and like instantly watch all the way through, what's his most undervalued movie? I'll let you boys get started. Yeah, pull the phones out, motherfuckers. I know mine. It's the one that we watched before True Romance. Yeah. Unstoppable. Mm. Like, it's... It's fucking great. Yeah. What about The Fan? No. no. I, you know what? Let's talk about The Fan. Is that the Why? Sto- is that the stalkery Wesley Snipes? Yeah, the, the, the Wesley Snipes is basically playing Barry Bonds. De Niro's um, playing De Niro. De Niro's playing De Niro. Uh, and he's stalking, you know, this San Francisco giant slugger. Talk to me, like, why do you like this movie? Because I, I really watched that one for this episode, and I actually, I don't like it. And I saw it in the theaters and did like it. It came out uh, during a time in my life when I was um, working at Blockbuster, uh, still in high school. And I don't remember a ton about it, but I remember the the point in which, like, he's on the field. Like, isn't there a big tensioning like point of it all when he's not sure where De Niro is and he thinks he's going to get killed, but then it comes back around. Yeah. It's like the end yeah. before he's, he's the umpire. At the yeah. End. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I just got the that knife. Yeah. Being such a high tension point. Like I legit was like on the edge of my seat and that, uh, it doesn't happen. Like not to sound like a dick, but I can usually like kind of figure out what's going to happen in films before it does. And like, that was one of the times it's like, I don't know where this is coming from. I, I rewatched it too. And I'm probably in between both of you. Like you have, fonder memories and you didn't like it rewatching it. I didn't have a bad time watching it. And to Scott's credit, something I noticed just like watching that many movies in so few days, this sounds like maybe cliche, but he has a propulsive like shooting style, but also editing style. Like his, his team, he doesn't have the editor, but they really move in this, this very fluid way where scenes blend one into the other. He uses these montages we talked about kind of from his music video well, even days. Even the montages for like when his rival, um, yeah, Benicio. Uh, Benicio like starts to go down and then uh, Wesley Snipes' character starts to go up. They cut together these almost like Moneyball style like montages yep. of them like happening. Like the filmmaking in it is still good. I just don't think the story and also frankly De Niro kind of sucks. It's I would agree, but I think the point I would make is that on his worst day, Tony Scott turns in a digestible, entertaining movie you might not write home to mom and dad about, but it's like. Don't regret the time I spent. I hadn't seen it in probably 20 years. I mean, seriously, at least 20 years since I last saw that movie. And I was like, cool. And it has a lot of the Tony Scott staples, I think. But it moves. The movie, like, the first 40 minutes, you really realize what's kind of happening. Because the whole stalker thing happens, like, late in the movie. So you're, like, saying the movie's, yeah. you're saying the movie's just on rails the whole it time? It takes them 55 minutes to get together. The same way that it takes like an hour for uh, Gene Hackman to show up into any yes, of the state. Same right, thing. Right, right, like right. His movies like find a pivot point almost in in like every single one to where yep. like they change right at the end. I totally agree. Um, here's the thing with the fan. There's a lot of stuff that I really like about it. Uh, I just think that De Niro's terrible in it. Like, oh wow, he's, he's just so over the top and bad. Where I thought he Wesley was, I Snipes, thought he was like re- rehashing some Cape Fear. Yeah, oh, there's oh, a lot 100%. of he's totally tapping 100%. into like the Travis Bickle, mm. uh, 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 Cape Fear, like all of his psycho stuff. Where like Wesley Snipes is 100% just being the most charismatic person ever, to where like you side with Wesley Snipes the whole time. 
And you're just like, Jesus Christ, like, I wish this guy would just leave him the fuck alone. <laughs> and frankly, like, Ellen Barkin's, like, super sexy. Oh, my like, God. Like, weird, uh, uh, like, sports radio talk But she host. also is really involved in figuring out who, like, the stalker is. It's like, yeah. wait, aren't you just a DJ? Like, they, <laughs> there's some pretty a lot of, uh, She's the DJ Eric. PI, okay? She's got a lot of letters in her title. <laughs> she reminded me of Eric Bogosian in talk radio. Yes. Or I, was like, in the, I was in that play in college. Oh, really? Yeah, I was the John C. McGinley character. Oh, wow. Crazy. <laughs> but, um... But you're so tall. I, I had a similar experience down. to you, Martin, with Days of Thunder. A movie I still don't particularly, like like or love but like i threw it on after i got home from work at like midnight and stayed up till two in the morning just watching it and i still was sitting there going all my problems with this are basically the same from the first time i've watched it it's not deep but it's captivating but it's so fucking like watchable the entire time like you're you're totally roped in and it's a great uh kind of example of how like tony scott was the ultimate big budget entertainer like, even when he was given, like, shit recycled material, which here, he's just making Top Gun with cars, you know? It's still... Hey, Robin's like racing. You're, you're all in, man. No, I agree. And something that Cody said earlier about, like, true romance that hits every beat is is interesting because, you know, a lot of times it's hard to tell the difference between... Or to say, this one was great because of the screenplay or, like, the directing, right? And with Scott, when he works with a great screenplay, like he knows where the moments are to hit, especially with Blockbuster. Even like a weak, like again, kind of generic sports screenplay like Robert Towns' Days of Thunder. He knows how to hammer home the important moments. And he's like, like a scene like the race between Michael Rooker and him on the way to, um, from the hospital to right. dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wheelchair they fuck up their car. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wheelchair and then renting the car yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is so amazing. Like, he knows, and something that, that Jacob said when we were texting is like, there's not an ounce of pretension in Tony Scott's films. There's no meta bullshit. There's no wink, wink at the audience. It's like, this is for real. I'm playing it straight. And Days of Thunder is a movie a great that observation. It, it, it's the first one I saw by him. And again, I watch it quite a bit. Totally agree. It's cliche as fuck. But like you said, I could watch that every day of the week. It's like a Snickers bar. It just, it's just like, <laughs> it's candy, it's good, it knows what it is, it's gorgeous. The score also, one of my favorite Zimmer yeah, scores Zimmer ever, is just like totally killing ripping. it. And great footage, like, great fucking NASCAR, like, you watch it, and you're like, how do they film this? Like, there's crazy shit in that movie. Similarly well, two, to like, how... mega movie star performances from both Cruz and Duvall. Yeah. Like, you're watching it, and you're like... My favorite Duvall role you, ever, you, period. Really? Yep. Ever? 100%. Even over Whoa. Tom Hagen? Yep, 100%. I think Nintendo Mercy's then Tom Hagen. I think that's that's that Bananas, like his role okay. that made me aware of who he was mm-hmm. and it sticks in my mind the strongest. Well, sure. he stuck with it forever. Like he plays the same role on Gone in sixty seconds. Yeah, like the same role, which is funny to bring up because I was thinking the wise about curmudgeon. other filmmakers who we have Bay, we have Dominic Senior too. These filmmakers who followed Bay, who are like, well, I'm just gonna do that style. Fucking TV shows, CSI season one and two uh, was Tony Scott. Yeah, like the 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 opening credits is a Tony Scott. He didn't do it, but yeah. it has that complete style. What uh, was the one that he produced with? Uh, wasn't it Numbers? Yeah, exactly. He directed that a couple he episodes. He directed like, yep. a little bit of it. Very I think similar. The pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, just wanted to add it to the the Days of Thunder. Whereas Top Gun made boys everywhere want to be fighter pilots. Days of Thunder made boys everywhere want to be NASCAR drivers. And didn't Bruckheimer produce CSI? 
Yeah, Isn't yeah. that him? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, like, yeah, he's just bringing the Tony all, Scott all 85 style, like, of them. to television. Yep. So, like, yeah, like, the, the, the cultural reach that Scott has had is ridiculous. But I guess the question is, out of all these movies that we really, really love, and probably some that we would even say are better than True Romance, like, why is this episode about True Romance? Name another film that he's made that's like True Romance. It definitely, st- agreed. Yeah. It, it, it sticks out like not a sore thumb, but just like it's a bloom out of his movies because he doesn't, he's not afraid of cliche. He's not afraid of like action movie plots. I mean, you think about like Unstoppable follows all the beats, even take, take him home with her. He definitely take, follows the beats. Deja Vu. True Romance is him working with a really great idiosyncratic script by by an up and coming artist like, like Tarantino. That's where I think. It's like, wow, when you put those two together, it, it also feels really strange he even did this movie. It really is surprising to me that like he made this kind of movie in that order. Well, it was his uh, second choice because the way that Tarantino explains it is that he met Tony Scott at a birthday party, I believe. And like he was introduced through like a mutual friend and they were and Tony like contacted that mutual friend like afterwards and was like, oh, what's up with Quentin? Like, what's his deal? Like, he seemed kind of cool. And she's like, oh, he's a writer. He has a couple things that are really good. Here they are. And it was Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. Well, but and, uh, and Tony, the, the like, True Romance script was also True Romance and, and Natural Born Killers, like all in one. Yeah, there, yeah, there was some overlap thing. between the two. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. But like Tony read them and was like, well, I want to make Reservoir Dogs. And they were like, well, and his, Quentin's friend was like, well... Quentin he wants, wants to one. basically do that himself. He wants to direct it. And Tony was like, okay, cool. I just, uh, I'll do true romance then. Hmm. Like he just knew that he had a great script on him because at the time true romance was already set up, uh, at, I believe it's a Canadian company called Cinetel with, uh, Bill Lustig directing. And I do often wonder like, what the fuck would Bill Lustig, you know, maniac cop, vigilante, maniac, like what would his version of true romance like look like? And who would the fuck would be in it? It seems more fitting for the the kind of story, you know, because sure. like one thing about Scott is that his stuff never feels too seedy. Um, and it's, 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 and this definitely does. It's gritty. Well, it's gritty. But I would seedy. argue that it like, I have a theory and I want to get into this later that I kind of texted you too, is I actually think there's a movie that matches this movie's seediness quote unquote before. And he it's revenge because revenge is almost like his peck and paw film. Mm-hmm. It's just a down and dirty gross, uh, almost like pseudo Western that's totally playing within like a genre, like a genre sandbox. Yeah. And is doing a thing with a movie star, but like true romance is the less nihilistic version of that. Hmm. If I could say, uh, I don't find true romance to be seedy at all. <coughs> like I know it deals with underworld tones, tones and things and some harsh realities and violence and whatnot, but I feel like it's taking all those things and bringing them into the bright light even of the- day and adding a nice xylophone background track. Even when she's getting beat in the hotel room, it's horrible, but there's, I mean, it's, Broad daylight, the the colors are vibrant. She ends up overcoming the situation. It's rough. It's hard to watch, but I, I don't find the movie seedy. I find it uh, uplifting. No, I think that's that's insane. 
because like, go ahead. Sorry. Um, well, I mean, we even commented while we were watching it is that uh, like I can't believe this movie made it through a major studio because sure. I I totally the, get the, the points you're making. Well, it's the just... whole the the stick up scene with Samuel L. Jackson and Drexel and the whole pussy eating monologue, <clears throat> the scene where Clarence goes in and just blows all the Drexel stuff. We'll just say like that's disgusting. That and, feels out of a Bill Lustig movie, like yeah. straight up. And the final shootout. The final shootout does, but also like the fucking. Walking monologue is <laughs> is rough. We'll the, say the, the, the hopper. Um, the the uh, there's another thing too. The the hotel sequence is really really rough. That feels in line with like lust because Lustig wasn't afraid of that level of like uncomfortable violence. I'm we'll not say. saying it's not rough. I just like to me CD feels like like seven like seven is seedy well i mean this movie's still taking place in, in like hotel rooms and brothels and, but it's also well lit and the, the colors bev- are vibrant and you get but i think that's almost you get, like you get like great orchestral music during dennis hopper's uh interrogation and murder but that's the douglas circ of it all right yeah, like what, to, to where like how and badlands yeah yeah before douglas circ like approached like melodrama in the 50s like it looked and felt a certain way, and then he brought this heightened kind of like anti-reality to it. Like that's what Tony Scott is doing to the seedy nature of like Tarantino. Who, let's face it, like the movies that inspired this were the movies that Lustig was making, and in, in the grindhouses for places like the New Beverly, which was Tarantino's like favorite haunt and everything. Like it's a great. Like I don't know, man. Like I, I get what you're trying to say, but it just feels. Like this movie's gross. Maybe, like, maybe it's the soundtrack for me that, that, that brings it out. Like the, the I think it's the level of craft. Like he just it. elevates it. No, and I would, and I see what you're saying, Cody, because like I, I would agree. He elevates the film um, because what I mean more, I think what I'm saying the same thing as you, Jacob, is that the subject matter on the page would would match more the Bill Lustig, hands down. Like that's who you'd be like, oh, duh, that's who I would pick to make this movie. But there is a a kind of fairy tale quality that Tony Scott brings to it, a, a lightness of this like romantic again with the music as well, pulling from Badlands and pulling on some Malik. It definitely is very aware of well, and being, casting all of these like soon to be movie stars too. Can we on, at some point talk about the fucking hit list that the casting of oh, this yeah. fucking film? Sorry, Martin, please continue. No, but it's 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 cinematic. Like it, it is like I love Lustig, but like he's not a cinematic filmmaker in the sense that Tony Scott is in terms of yeah, making beautiful images like you're saying, Cody, and like it has this even when it's violent and horrible, it's gorgeous. But this again, you can't ignore the subject matter of like it start they meet in like a CD um, use the adjective again. Um, triple feature, like she's know, a hooker. She's a hooker. He and it's just and no. And she's a call girl. Well, they're in this basically. They're in, they're in Detroit, which is like synonymous with CD in this era of cinema. So it's you know very similar to like the crows, the crows. You right. know Detroit. Oh, uh, this also has another tie with the crow. The first girl that uh, yep. Clarence is mm-hmm. talking to it's in the, the bar is Darla. Yep. So I, I see what you're both here saying, but I, I think that I would agree with the subject matter. It's a it's. Probably Tony Scott's CDest movie. Period. No, in, 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 re- revenge is okay. Like one hundred percent revenge. Like it, you had you didn't get to That's, revenge. On I've this seen rewatch. it before, but I skipped it this time. It's I like legit it. uncomfortable just because the amount of like brutal misogyny that's mm. laid upon uh, Madeline Stowe. Like that movie. It's straight up. It's it's Scott's Sam Peckinpah film. Mm. Like it, it's really ugly. 
So if I could bring up a question to try and defend my uh, perspective of not finding it seedy, is there ever a point in the film that you feel like uh, Slater and Arquette are not going to come out on top? Yes. Even Honestly, if- the Gandolfini stuff, I thought she was going to die the first time I watched this. I'm not going to lie. I still get that that feeling every time we rewatch it that I can't believe that she wins every time because... Like he's he just, it. Yeah. He, he's horrible in it. He's just yeah. a heinous motherfucker. Also delivering like that first memorable Gandolfini role ever. I think uh, so. Yeah. But he, yeah, because this also, is before Crimson Tide. Too. I also like it a lot because he brings like a touch of comedy to it. Like the first time yeah. he pops her in the face and then he does that look up to the side and like tilt his head and does the mouth thing. You can see, if you're a Sopranos fan, you can yeah. see so much Tony Soprano in you, you, you see the Soprano scenes. Thing. Yeah. Well, you see him You see him very much moments of that in um, Crimson Tide yeah. as well. Of just like this intensity. And like he's got that like... That kind of that kind of smirk, smile, growl face like that he can do. We're talking about two different things, I think, here as well. Is that a seedy film can still be hopeful? You know, like there is still a sense of. So when I think seedy, I said a second ago, like I think like a film like Seven, and I don't think Seven is hopeful. No, so see, yeah. So when I'm when we're talking seedy, I think we're talking also atmosphere. It's like the world this takes place in is a seedy atmosphere. Like it is, it is. Yeah. Like again, brothels, drug dealing dens, two lovers on the run with a. Suitcase yeah. full of cocaine, back alley movie producers. Even even the apartment of like Michael Rappaport is like these yeah. are like it's real LA. Floyd. You know these just like these I'd like be real shit mafia. To see, I'd be really His interested dad to see lives in a trailer. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like yeah, I hate to put it this way, but it's the very textbook definition of seedy. All right, the world they built, but again, told with a fairy tale flair. I think that more than he's ever done before as a filmmaker. So. I don't want to step on questions, but like, what's the worst Tony Scott movie? Since we do top three and remake and everything, but like, where are we going from the bottom here? I'll take this one. Domino. It's pretty high. I rewatched that recently, two days ago. Woof. Not, I think it's the, he went, that's the ultimate acid era we're talking about. Right. And I think I'd still go with the Pelham one, two, three remake that, beneath that. But yeah, Domino's low, but I still like the Richard Kelly of it all with Domino. And I mean, I know that the three of us fight a lot because I'm a Southland Tales uh, partisan. Defender. You guys are incorrect in your opinion of, of disliking Southland Tales. Incorrect. In, incorrect in but your also opinion. like, that, that like I, I, I like the the idiosyncratic script of Domino. No, I my the worst one for me is Pelham. Um, I think rewatching that, I saw it in the theater. It is. It's really. It feels like it's antiquated before it came out. Like the way that it's using a nineteen ninety six John Travolta for two thousand nine. Um, he's still doing his broken arrow bit or face off or, yeah. or a face off, but he would, that kind of like, he's doing the same thing, but it's like, we all kind of got the gist of it already. And it's 13 years ago or that my one pushback is that like, I feel like it's the amped up version of the 90s Travolta uh, villain because he's going on and on with like monologues about being like a prism bottom boy. And, and, and like, there's a lot of, over the top weirdness in that performance. No, and it and I feel bad not liking it because 
you know, Hal Glenn wrote it, who also wrote Man on Fire and won an Oscar for LA Confidential, and he's an amazing screenwriter. Like, he's fantastic. But when, he, when he's... Also go- the time when he wrote... And direct- true rock, True Crime or... Uh, yeah. Blood work for blood work. Clint. I think it was blood work. But then he also around and then early two thousands wrote and directed Knight's Tale. Um, oh yeah, but, shit. Yeah, really good movie. Um, but he wait uh, a Knight's Tale. The mm-hmm. yeah, love that movie. Yeah, so good. But he, I feel bad ripping so hard on Pell One Two Three, but it is a, it's a mess, man. And one of the things we talked about watching Unstoppable together was that Unstoppable. You talked earlier about the idea of these these pairs, these kind of duo films. And Pelham and Unstoppable are definitely that, where you feel watching Pelham one, two, three, he's like, I want the train to move. I want the subway to move. And the whole, the majority of the movie, because the first part is like, this train won't stop. And you see Tony Scott loves him a command center. Oh my God. He loves a command center with people on computers. A busy one. And, and a busy one and headsets. I was writing a script. That seems very Michael Bay. I was, but I was writing a script with my friend, and he was like, "We got to write a command center scene." We watched a shit ton of Tony Scott for real, because well, he, like he's the ultimate. Who directed off of a who directed Cody. Battleship? Peter Berg, Berg, also who's very Bay and very yeah, also exactly. very Tony Scott, and yeah. also loves him a command room. But to bounce off of Cody uh, Armageddon, all the Billy Bob Thornton yes. stuff feels like yeah. a Tony Scott movie. And uh, yeah, he he loves like these. You think what Deja Vu has it as well. A lot of stuff in the does it very well. These Enemy people, of the state. The, and oh, the, that's so good. Enemy of the state. Well, you got Jack Black and like well, you, Seth, you have like Seth three Green. different control rooms. You got the one in the truck, and then you also have Dennis Hopper's like a uh, little control room that he has set up. Right, the well, whole, the, all his shits in like a pharaoh cage. Oh, you mean uh, Gene Hackman? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's very um, well. Even the fan, like the the uh, DJ booth becomes yep. the control station to a certain degree. He, he loves, he loves almost. I was thinking of like a film, like the guilty, you know, of, of knowing how to use uh-huh. the way that people are trying to figure out what's going on. Um, the way, especially the way that he's working and the plot points of film one, two, three are very guilty esque where it's a guy who has to end up putting his, um, his own crime on the line to kind of save the day. It doesn't land as well as The Guilty. The Guilty is kind of a perfect film. Um, but you also... You're feel, talking about the, the Danish. The Danish one, Swedish. not... Yeah, it Danish it's Danish. Yeah, yeah, Danish. Not the not the remake with Hall. But the fact that you watch Pelham 1, 2, 3, and he's like, I want the train to move. I want it to move. And then his follow-up is Unstoppable, which is just this ultimate action, like simplicity itself of there's a runaway train... What do we do about it? You said the other day, like, it's a monster movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's kaiju. It's Godzilla. It's Or you said King Kong is the way they put it, right? Yeah. And, like... It's it's a rolling nuke. It's a really slow missile. <laughs> well, even when, like, every time the train, like, appears, it roars. Yep. Yeah. Like, it, it comes at you as, like, and you're like, oh, my God. Like... It's Jaws. You can't believe it. And I think to bounce off of what you're saying, like... There's no fat to it. There's there's literally almost nothing else to Unstoppable outside of like, here's the train. Here's the professionals who like need to stop it. Here's the end point. Well, he, if they here's, don't get from A to B, 
It's a disaster. Here's the professional. The only, here's the yeah. less experienced guy. Yeah. But it's interesting because he also like layers in this whole. You know what that? Of, I'm sorry to cut you off. You know what that also reminds me of? Black Dog. Swayze. Oh, yeah. 100%. Very good movie. Yeah. Or Convoy. Also very good. Peck and Paw. Yeah. But there's, but it's also an unstoppable. He puts this, um, economic kind of layer economic, this kind of like working class hero thing with both these two guys who colored the entire time. They kind of connect over like being mistreated by the company. And, and you find out that Denzel's character has been basically been ousted. It's like early retirement, which he doesn't want. You have this young guy who basically the decisions they make are actually going to affect their job where they're like, we're going to try to save the day. Their boss um, is basically telling them, if you do, you're out of a job. So it's very much this like working class. It's a pro it's a pro union movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's it's Madawan on fucking rails. Like since it's Tony Scott's last movie period before he committed suicide tragically, like it's actually a great inadvertent capper to his uh, partnership with Denzel is that you watch all of these movies like straight up from Crimson Tide all the way to Unstoppable is that in Crimson Tide, he's the guy who's plucked basically like he has a great resume and everything, but he's basically plucked from nowhere because uh, uh, Captain Ramsey's uh, uh, XO gets a stomach flu. Yeah. And he's appendicitis. He's in, yeah. Oh, appendicitis. That's it. Sorry. But he's brought in. No, it's fine. Like I, I, can't remember the specifics of the 800 movies we watched for this episode. <laughs> but, like, he's brought in as this young, up-and-coming, like, idealist, uh, full of life, and, mm. like, uh, is, like, knowledgeable of, like, the, the codes of conduct. And he even has that amazing uh, uh, mess hall sequence with Hackman where they talk about the nature of war itself. Um, but you end... With Unstoppable. He's the teacher. To where he's the teacher to Chris Pine. He's the aged veteran who's like clinging to his job. But like he's the idealized version of that first character that they created together. And like... Can we also just say how good In Pine a weird is like twist of, of, of very tragic coincidence. Like that arc with he and Denzel, which is one of... Like l- let's not be light or glib about this this is one of the greatest uh director and actor pairings in the history of cinema nobody has churned out more uh consistent entertaining and and frankly artistically minded movies in the commercial space than tony scott and denzel did together and watching unstoppable the other night is like it sucks because of the way that it ended, but like if there's a period that's going to be at the end of that sentence, fuck it, man. Unstoppable fucking rules. Do you think that film was supposed to be like a passing of the torch? No, it was not because, I mean, nobody knew Tony Scott was going to commit suicide two years later. Yeah. Like it's it's just, you know, I, like I, I think it was supposed more between to be like Denzel an ushering and, uh, in Chris Pine. Of, of like Chris Pine as a movie star. Right. But well, I mean, he already time, had that from uh, Star Trek. Is that... It's 09, so it's the is year that before. Is that 09, so it's the year before? Maybe. No. And, and I do think that, like, Scott was one of the greatest at, like, spotting what a movie star could be throughout his entire career, from, like, Cruise to Denzel, Hackman. Like, he worked with the, the best fuckers out there. But, like... He's very Michael Mann in that aspect. 
Yeah, to a certain degree. Um, I always felt, I talked to my friend, I said that, like, Tony Scott's between Michael Bay and Michael Mann. Like, he's he has a lot of the aesthetics and the more of the fun action elements of Bay. Oh, that's really apt. But also, like, really no story. He's not a writer himself like Mann is, and he doesn't have quite the consistent obsession with certain themes. Like, But there's a lot of stuff of men at work as well, men who are good at their jobs. Um, Crimson Tide could be a Michael Mann movie if you wanted it to be. I could see him doing that story uh, of two men on opposite sides who end up you know, finding a common ground. Um, Unstoppable is there. Pelham 123 is, could be Michael Mann as well. I could see Mann picking up a true romance, but it would be a three-hour film. He could... His would... Yeah... Mm, he would never work with Tarantino. It, 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 would, but, it would never have the levity that it does, but it would be a three-hour film. Yeah, it's um, it's it's just interesting to see his his relationship with with Denzel because I was think, watching it. Something you said, Jacob, the other night when we were watching Unstoppable is that you know Denzel said of Tony Scott that he's an actor's director and he's such a visual director where it means for again, you have these different eras of films, but you can always like, that's either a Tony Scott film or someone aping Tony Scott. Like he has a very distinct visual style, but he like watching Crimson Tide again last night for like the 30th fucking time. And I have no regrets is that it is like a parlor drama. Like this, there's like a couple three or four scenes where there's outside interference of like another um, submarine from the Russians. But the majority is just power plays. Well, of, of dialogue and character. Cody put it perfectly before we actually started recording is that it's about two alphas trapped inside an underwater dick. Yeah. Like, you just, you can't escape. The visual metaphor is all there. Yep, it's 100%. And, and, and it's, I, I think what I said was it's two dicks trapped inside a giant metal dick under the water. That works fair. too. I tried to make it more elegant, but that works too. But Crim- Crimson I, Tide is... I like my is, statements a little more seedy. <laughs> Crimson Tide is, is just a fucking a perfect film through and through and it's interesting to just see these kind of ebbs and flows and I don't mean ebbs and flows in terms of quality but in terms of just like things he's trying out as a filmmaker um, well, visually and, and storytelling wise at the same time like Denzel recognizes that he's an actor's director I mean like somebody who doesn't uh, let's say suffer fools lightly like Denzel, like yep. certainly wouldn't reteam with the same commercial filmmaker five, for five times. different movies. <laughs> um, but like at the same time, uh, Denzel's also the one who labeled him nine camera Tony, the guy who like would literally set up as many cameras as he could. So you want to get it on the in one, one scene? Well, it's not so much that it, it was the way that Tony Scott's style progressed as he went on. Cause he was, you know, in the early seventies, he was like an art school kid from England. You know, he, he signed up in the mid seventies to go work with his brother uh, at uh, Ridley Scott associates, direct commercials and everything. But he like, even himself always said like, I have a painter's mentality and like going from the hunger probably all the way through until about Crimson Tide yep. when he really started to do like the Bruckheimer stuff. You can see the single camera like composition stuff like happening like inside of his films. But then as his movies get more and more and more complex, 
even with like Top Gun, Top Gun, I would say that there's some of this too with harnessing the, the cameras to the fighters and everything. He would uh, compose with the wildest angles that he had in his head, shoot the entire scene and then find some of it in the end it like to to a Malikian degree. But it's not like he stopped composing. It's almost like the difference between like, you know, like like a Van Gogh who, who uh, paints these kind of abstract portraits or like a Jackson Pollock who's just throwing things at a canvas until he basically sees what he wants to see. But there's like a method to the madness the entire time. Like it's not like he's just doing this willy nilly. And that's kind of what uh, uh, Tony Scott evolved into from making these very uh, focused, concise action pictures like Top Gun, like Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, like Revenge, to like when you get into the the Acid Trilogy stage of like uh, Man on Fire, Domino, and Deja Vu, uh, to where like, you know, he's setting up multiple cameras at a time, but with like Man on Fire, uh, Domino, and Deja Vu, that not all of them are shooting the same stock. Some are like yeah. crank cams, some are like eight millimeters, some are 16, some are like, you know, 30, like hyper blown out 35. And he's just splicing it all together to become this post Oliver Stone impressionistic kind of like a genre filmmaking. And man, like nobody, like people have tried to replicate this. Nobody has done it quite like he has since he's been dead. I mean, Swordfish, he was, before he passed away, but Swordfish tried, I mean, Dominic Seeking again tried to do it. You'd think he'd be trying to do a Tony Scott thing, also with. Um, you can very much see the influence. But it's ugly. It does not work in that movie. Um, it's like. Or even Con Air, especially like, with a the movie that I really, really like, like. That's a Tony Scott movie, but it's also a different movie in Tony Scott's hands because it has the other, uh, let's say, staple. Of the the Tony Scott kind of filmography, then it's that third he act fills. Well, no, it, it's that he literally has he has a main A plot with a, a, a major movie star, but then he has a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. But they're all populated by these incredible uh, uh, character actors the entire time. Like like Con Air is almost the greatest replication of Tony Scott's style, but it's Simon West, so he's not operating on the same level. Still it's, a great it's Bruckheimer movie, producing, it's super right? fun, and yeah, Bruckheimer yeah. producing. But like, compare that against like True Romance, to where like you see all of the different plot lines and all of the different characters that are peppered in, but that becomes the the Tony Scott miasma is that it's it's a family of these performers that he's able to all bring in and bring all of this color together to kind of just deliver this world for two hours or two hours and 10 minutes. And you're just totally entertained the entire time. Totally. Do we want to get to questions? Let's do it. Questions. Boom. We're back with questions about Tony Scott's True Romance. 
All right, guys. Who wants to go first? Double feature. Double feature all? I'll go first. All right. I mean, watching True Romance, and I know in previous episodes we can pick one from the filmography of the filmmaker to double feature with, but I want to do with True Romance. And <clears throat> watching the whole time, it's probably the least inspired, but Wild, wild at Heart um, would be what I do. I think that you have these two leads who are Elvis-centric, obsessed with Elvis. You have this blonde bombshell as the the female lead they're both on the run in some way you know one in this wizard of oz acid dream of all that heart and one in this kind of like you said more bill lustig kind of background um may obviously him being almost attached those are the two films i kept thinking of also of that both films view of of love of this kind of really elemental you meet someone and immediately that's it now with true romance we get the we see the meet cute of them you know kind of fall for each other even though we don't find out immediately that she has been hired to be with him wild at heart obviously that happens before because uh, he's getting out of jail i believe at the beginning um and and reconnecting with her. So yeah, that, that similar vibe of 1950s, like projected into early 1990s. Um, those would be my two. Cody. I'm going with, uh, Selma and Louise for my double feature. Uh, you have two people that are trapped in a world of which they don't necessarily ultimately desire to be. And they're looking for a better way out. They find each other, and through that, they find the strength to break free from the bonds of life that hold them. And then they go on this road trip adventure to better themselves. And then they have just the the fate of the world crash upon them, trying to resist their upheaval from that. And then they have to overcome throughout the plot of the film. And it's also a beautiful journey of romance, even though it's not a direct romance between the characters, the way it is in true romance, it's still a romance of, I respect your journey in life. <clears throat> I see where you're coming from. And I think we can help each other. And also Brad bits in both of them. So fuck it. Sure. <clears throat> I would probably go with the uh, 2001 French movie, Basé Moi. Uh, which was a kind of rape revenge movie of the, the new extremity that came out. Another road film about a woman who is kind of abused and raped in the same way that uh, from our last episode, Zoe Loon's uh, mute seamstress from Miss 45 is she kind of teams up with uh, the love of her life, goes on a road trip, kind of a, kind of raging revenge against all of masculinity. And uh, it's just a weird outsider piece of movie for, uh, making from the early 2000s France uh, that Kino just put out that I would probably double this. And I think it would work pretty well. So uh, next question, top three, uh, Tony Scott. So for me, I would say... I mean, Crimson Tide is number one for me. Um, probably always. I don't think that'll change for me. It's him at his height of 
like blockbuster filmmaking, but it also is like you know, this like parlor drama, like this kind of small, really tuned up thriller. Um, I also just love submarine movies. Um, I love Hunt for October. I love Run Silent Run Deep. I love Das Boot. I love U five seven one. Anything with with a submarine. This one takes that to the ultimate idea of a, you know meet me in the bounty as well. Um, you have two performances from Denzel and Gene Hackman, and you can tell that, you know, again, the actress director note from Denzel of these two working together so well. Um, there's, the, I think, one of the first scenes they come to complete, not blows, but complete um, drama between the two of them, where, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, Denzel is, you know, citing precedent. And Gene Hackman is citing experience. And you have these two like warring ideologies. And I think that it carries the whole film. Also, for a film that takes place in a, you know, a, a tube, you, you talk really about, you know, you know, nine camera Tony. He finds these angles in this set. And and it's obviously not a real submarine. And so he has these great um, He tried great to film it on a real submarine, and then the US military told him. Nah. Well, I'm glad he didn't because there's some shots he couldn't have gotten with these like these jib shots and these like crane shots between levels. Yeah, totally. That build suspense. Um, number two for me is honestly deja vu. Um, I for that is a film that keeps rising up my list. Um, I think about films. You know, when I think about a filmmaker and what I love, like what do I what do I return to the most? And it's that um, I watch that film all the time. And I love the kind of like possible tomorrow sci-fi of it. Like it, it has this technology. The first time you see the time travel, or not time travel, but time viewing technology. It's kind of like a Star Trek episode. Yes, very much of what kind of a what if. Um, the first time you see it, you know, it's at the site of this explosion. And Denzel kind of sees someone in the rain out of the corner of his eye with these weird, you know, basically goggles on his head and it's like well and it, it kind of eases you into this world um and i love time travel movies that are done well and this one also it's not doesn't get lost in the mythology slash like science of time travel and it basically it you have denzel who's like our every man who's a cop who says i don't care how it works how can i use it there's a great line where it's like he cuts all the bullshit of like Whatever you want to explain to me in a script or in a film, how do I use this for the story? And he's he's us, you know, pulling us through that. And then third is tough for me. I would probably say Days of Thunder. Um, I know it's it's uh, it's a little strange. Uh, Jake gave me a look, but I get it. Um, again, I'm talking about films that I've watched more than the others. And I wouldn't even say I think Days of Thunder is a better film than like Man on Fire or Spy Game, which are in close con- contention for for number three. Um, but I think it is a perfect blockbuster. You know, it is just it, it just it moves. Great sports movie. It's beautiful. It's entertaining as fuck. Great score by Hans Zimmer. So those are my three. Cody, uh, just a quick list. Um, True Romance. Top Gun, Enemy of the State. Uh, this has to do with uh, True Romance is the top of it for me because I mentioned earlier it's part of just like my teenage emotional development. I really link to this film. I also think, as I said, it's a perfect film. I don't think there's a single shot that's wasted. 
every single line of dialogue progresses the film. Like there's 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 not a scrap of overindulgence or anything here that is like not meant to be. Um, it's a fantastic film. The xylophone in it that that doesn't necessarily like link to one character or another. It just links to the uplifting feeling of because that's the thing a lot of films do is like they tie musical themes like into one character or another. This has that 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 theme that you hear throughout it, and it's it's just it's Badlands. So it's 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 a Carl Orff it's a Carl Orff piece that okay. is borrowed for another film. Yeah, no, I agree. It ties well, it together. Outside of my realm of knowledge, but but it's it's yeah it's uh it's a classical piece that was used in the theme that was used, but it was used in Parents Mouth's Badlands, which is also about a kind of. I saw Jacob like nodding his head off, like looking at me, like say something. <laughs> yeah, it, but no, but it's it's basically about a greaser. His it's basically Terrence Mount's version of uh, um, Starkweather, who was a killer in okay. uh, in the South, and does a very similar thing. Even the opening and the closing with um, a voiceover from the female character. Okay. Um, oh, that's another thing I wanted to add. The the four year old at the end of it. Uh, Patricia Arquette's actual son at the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's her actual four-year-old baby. <laughs> well, it's it's a very uplifting ending with with De- Badlands after he's been put to death and she's she was so young she kind of went on to live her life okay. after the fact. But it's definitely what I like about True Romance as well is that it's a love letter to all the things that Tarantino loves about cinema. And it's funny because like we know his love for like. Hong Kong cinema and like kind of genre cinema and grindhouse cinema of America. But, you know, besides this film, I didn't realize he's a Malick fan and for him to pull on this film, that's at that point only 20 years old. Yeah. I'd argue that Tony Scott is probably the Malick fan with, uh, Oh, interesting. Zim- yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Like he probably wrote it and I, I don't doubt that, you know, Tarantino he saw the connection. Saw, yeah. Like Badlands more than once before he wrote the script. It feels more or less like this confluence of kind of influences that all these people brought to it that that worked all at once. Absolutely. For mine, I'd go Man on Fire, Crimson Tide, and Revenge. Oh, cool. Yeah. I feel like Revenge is the one that's the most underrated, um, especially the theatrical cut. The director's cut actually sucks. <laughs> uh, it, it, he fucked up his own movie because the theatrical cut is the closest to like a studio-funded, uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia level, like Peck and Paw movie. We haven't seen since the seventies, and it's it's gross, it's violent, it's upsetting, and it's brilliant. So that's that's my number three. That's the one I feel bad not rewatching because I rewatched every other Scott film and films I've watched numerous times. But honestly, part of that was when I've watched it, I haven't loved it. I, I it doesn't feel kind of. I don't a think weird it's a movie. I don't think it's a bad film, but I've always just been a little bit like. It's, it's, weird a, it's an because, entertaining like, Scott uh, film. There's no redeemable character outside of the one who's raped and beaten 
and just disfigured the entire film. And I love Madeline Stowe, and I hate I hate yeah. to see her like and she films like Blank too. She was very abused in the, for real, the era was just sure. she was kind of this like this whipping woman for a lot of films, it seemed like. So remake. Yes, no, maybe so. Cody? Uh, true Romance? No, not at all. I, I, don't, I don't see it being feasibly possible. I don't think you can beat Christian Slater and Patricia. Patricia Arquette is beyond cute in this movie. It's criminal how fucking adorable and attractive she is. There is there You, you could put Margot Robbie in this and it would not come close to comparing. You could, I've never thought... Like her... Her smile alone, with her teeth not being like Hollywood perfect straight, is an endearing aspect of the character that you cannot like plan on and replicate. It's just it's they 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 went through so many actresses. I was doing some IMDb research and I can't remember all the names. They went through like some like top tier women, and it just would not have compared. Like no, you you can't beat Patricia Arquette. You can't beat Christian Slater just being charming, charming and believable. Like. Elvis obsessed Christian Slater and also being like a similar height to her. I think that is also fucking perfect. You can't beat it. And he's also like a mild, like dissociative identity sort of Val Kilmer being Elvis in the background telling him he's like the fucking man. But uh, yeah, I, I don't, you, you can't beat this cast. You cannot beat this cast. Michael Rappaport, uh, Christopher Walken, <laughs> everybody, uh, Gary Old, Gary Oldman didn't read a word of the script. The director met with him and was like, you're going to be playing a white guy who thinks he's a black guy, who is a pimp. And Gary Oldman said, I am in, without reading a word of it. And then Gary Oldman collaborated with the costume designer and did the whole uh, dreads and the scar and the contact, which I believe is actually a contact that he used from his uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula film. He didn't talk with Tony Scott about it at all. The first day that Tony Scott saw Drexler... Uh, realized was the first day Gary Oldman was on set in full makeup and dress. That was totally Gary Oldman's design. Like this is, this is an incredible meeting of grand minds. It's a nexus and a gravity of just fantastic artistry. And I don't see how this could be replicated. There's also like an urban legend about that character too, to where like Tony Scott in in, uh, interviews was like, Oh, Gary Oldman came to me and was like, oh, it's based on my drug dealer. And then they they interviewed Gary Oldman and he was like, Tony Scott's trying to put me in jail. I read that uh, Gary Oldman had said that he based it off of one of his co-stars in The Professional, one of the guys that was in his his gang. I forget the dude's name. It's like Mm -hmm. a three-name name. name, But Mm -hmm. uh, he based it on that guy's personality. There we go. What do you think for Remake or No? Um, yes. I mean, it's a Bonnie and Clyde story. You can do this a million times over. You just have to add a different element to it, which I think is what Tarantino more or less did. He took Badlands. He took Bonnie and Clyde. He took uh, all this kind of pre-packaged genre storytelling that we take for granted and loaded his own perception into it. So totally, you could do this. I mean, if you call it true romance, sure, that works. I mean, it's just write your own story. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of our conversation, I guess, last week about Bad Lieutenant, of 
you know, Ferraris films, none of them would be considered like some of them on paper. You're like, well, that's just generic, but what he does with it is so interesting. And so the, the way that Herzog, you know, makes uh port call new Orleans is playing in that same sandbox and making a really interesting film with some really bare bones <clears throat> elements. But it's like, Hey, you got a piece of shit cop. Like that's your jumping off point. Go crazy. I feel the same about true romance. I would agree that like, I see what you're saying, Cody of like to make this film again, to try to remake this true romance. Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. No, not happening again, but an interesting like experiment of, we're going to call a film true romance, give another like really interesting auteur writer direct. I would say writer director this time together um, to kind of do, to do their version of it. Would be interesting because again, it is it is playing on some really um, like some solid tropes from classic Hollywood, like Luca Guadagnino's with *Spirit Romance*. Yeah, would watch that ten times out of ten. Yeah, someone who doesn't have also a something I'm getting tired of with remakes and with with reboots is a religious love for the original text to the point where they have no objectivity of the, how to tell the story. I mean, like for me, the Halloween reboot slash remakes or whatever you want to call it with Halloween, Halloween kills of uh, filmmakers who are so they feel indebted to the, the, the Carpenter film where it's like, it's a good movie, but it's also a genre movie. It's supposed to be fun and entertaining. You're Made treating in the it. 70s. You're, but you're also treating it like it's the fucking Bible. So just make a goddamn movie. Or Ghostbusters. Yeah, that's my next point, you know, of you're treating it like this was kind of a happy accident with some great comedians who wrote a solid script with great special effects and a good director. And you're treating it like this holy grail of perfect filmmaking from the 80s. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Same with Indiana Jones. Yeah, same shit. Yeah. Fellas, face melts or status? Yay? Nay? What do you think? I think yay, 100%. Uh, similarly to the way that The Crow was an emotional face melter for me, this movie was also just a different point in my life, another emotional face melter. Like, this gave me hope that there was the perfect girl out there for me. Um, you know, they could like the things that I like, be into the things that I was into, and uh, that we could have a grand old time having a road trip based upon uh, violence, murder, drug resale, and uh, just sailing off into the sunset, you know, if I ended up with an eye patch or not. Martin? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I know it's our re- recurring conversation of, for me, the ultimate hard target uh, base melter of just, you know, balls to wall action and craziness, but that doesn't mean to say that a film has to be that to be a face melter. This movie also doesn't hold back on that. Like it has its elements of balls to the wall. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this film, like you said, definitely has that where it's extreme. It has that Tony Scott vibe that explodes through during the violent scenes, during the action scenes. Again, his, his pacing, I think, again, that can't be like overstated is like the way he knows how to move a scene. And then with his, his editing team as well, 
that films, these scenes just kind of, they blend in the next. They're always moving. It's this propulsive nature of every film where you're in the next scene before you realize it. Um, and so I would say absolutely yes. I think also just like stylistically bringing to life the mind of, of Quentin Tarantino in a really interesting way that's um, not made by Tarantino is a, is a great uh, face melter vibe for me. Yeah, 100%. Because, like, this is the movie that gave us Quentin. Yeah. Right? More or less. So... It's the movie that that backed the beginning of Quentin. Yeah, exactly. So without this, like, you don't have an entire generation of filmmakers, more or less. Yeah. So even though, like, Tony Scott, like, influenced, like... uh, blockbuster action in his own right in his own stylistic ticks it's tough to watch this and not wonder like what if bill lustig like actually made this movie because that robs us of an entire run of folks and like auteurs from the 90s so it's hard to not just label this a face melter just from like a historical standpoint do either of you know the the numbers on how well this film did when it came out? It wasn't a huge hit or anything. Like it, it became a hit through home video, and especially like once DVD and so the it, director's cut came out. So like, it got it got cult status. Yeah, more okay. or less. So I mean, like again, and Tarantino's name once he took off propelled it to to another kind of uh, kind of stratus, let's say, of, yeah. of cult uh, cinema fandom. So, but yeah, I I 100% vote this as a face melter. It just, even watching it the other night, we've seen it so many times, but we just shut the hell up and got totally locked into what was happening. That final Mexican standoff between the Italian, like, hitmen, the feds, Clarence, uh, the bodyguards, the, the bodyguards, like it, it's just. It's what I got to tell you, doing, I hate cops. In a body bag, like it's just. <laughs> it's incredible. It's 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 hard to describe or even replicate, like what watching that for the first time was like, and yeah, you know, even time twenty, it still delivers that thrill. So I go one hundred percent. So good, agreed. All right, guys. Well, that's true romance spine. Number 19 of the Secret Handshake podcast. Fellas, great to be in the same room together. Great to be back in the saddle. And uh, we'll see you next time for Secret Handshake.
white on white, translucent black cakes back on the rack. The little goose is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been bled, red velvet lines, the black box. The little goose is dead. This is 